Welcome to Wildwood College Life of Wildwood Community Church in Norman, Oklahoma. We are four following Jesus together to the glory of God. We meet on Sunday mornings at 945 for Bible teaching, breakfast, and fellowship, and would love to see you there this week. Follow us on Instagram at Wildwood College for more information. And with that, let's dive into this week's message. We'll be in John chapter 6, and just some context for this passage. This passage takes place right after the feeding of the 5,000, okay? So Jesus has been performing miracles, and he just performed the miracle of feeding the 5,000. And now he is, all the people were searching for him, and he begins this discourse. But before we begin, I need to share a story. I, earlier this year, do we have any movie buffs in the room? Do we have any movie buffs? No. Okay, great. This will be a really good illustration then. Uh, when I, earlier this year, I was online and I was seeing all these things about this movie that had apparently become this instant classic. And at the Academy Awards, it ended up winning seven Oscars. And so I was like, okay, I've got to see this movie. And this movie was everything, everywhere, all at once. And as I watched this movie, I was struck by, you know, the special effects were awesome and the fast-paced nature of the film, it was really cool. And essentially this, the premise of this film is the protagonist goes on this journey through parallel universes or multiverses to save her family and discover her true self. But by the time the movie ended, I was disappointed. I was really disappointed because it co-ops a worldview that is both hopeless and just unsatisfying. And it's essentially that life has no inherent meaning and basically just make the most out of it. You know, since life is meaningless, enjoy it to the best of your ability while you can. And I think it's an anthem for our generation. You know, when I think about conversations that I've had with students, you know, that, that's kind of the response I get whenever, you know, they don't come from a Christian background, you know, that everything in life can be bent to one's will because life really doesn't have any meaning. And if it doesn't have any meaning, I'm just going to make the most of it and do whatever makes me happy or, you know, makes me feel good. And the unfortunate thing is this idea was celebrated as a virtue. It was celebrated as something good, that you should live this way too. And I don't know what you guys think. You know, maybe you have gone through a terrible experience. Maybe you've gone through a really traumatic experience and you can't help but, but believe that surely if this happened, there can be no meaning from it. Or maybe you have, you know, received news or you've, you've gone through something really tragic and you can just say, you can just look at your life and you're just unsure of how any of this could have meaning, how any of this could, could have purpose behind it. You know, you might believe that life is meaningless like many of your peers today, but I hope that today we will show you that there is something that truly satisfies there is something that truly, completely, and permanently, and ultimately satisfies. And the goal of this life is not to just shrug and make the most of it, but it is to find your satisfaction ultimately in something greater than yourself. In fact, I hope today you'll see that you are created on purpose and for a purpose, and that we will see that Jesus is the bread of life and that he ultimately and completely satisfies. And because Jesus ultimately and completely satisfies, we should look to him for the 
satisfaction in our own life. And we'll see that as the bread of life, God's bread is given to the hungry. We'll also see that God's bread always satisfies. And lastly, that God's bread lasts forever. So like I said, we'll be reading today from John 6, and our verses will be verses 25 through 51. And just for some context, I want to put up the Sea of Galilee. And so up until this point, Jesus had just fed the 5,000, okay? Jesus had just fed the 5,000, and it was a miraculous thing. He fed all these people with just a few loaves of bread and a couple fish. And essentially, the crowd was looking for Jesus. What had happened was the disciples had left on a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and when they were three to four miles out to sea, John chronicles that Jesus met them out there. How did he meet him out there? He walked on the water. And the people over here are curious the next day about where Jesus is because they saw that he didn't leave with the disciples. So where could he be? You know, they're looking around for him. They, they had no context or no frame of reference to believe that he had somehow walked on water. That just wasn't a category for them. And so people in Tiberias, they heard about this. And so they sailed over to the group that was... That, the the site of the feeding of the 5,000. And after they couldn't find Jesus, they essentially got together with the boats that they got to get here and sailed to Capernaum. Capernaum was the the home base, essentially, of Jesus. And so this is kind of where this takes place. After looking for Jesus, it kind of sets the stage for the question that they ask in verse 25. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they said, Rabbi, when did you get here? How did you get here? When did you get here? And Jesus answered, not their question, but he answered, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 34, Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say now, I, come down, I came down from heaven. Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. 
Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here's the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may not, may not eat, may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Amazing. So this is my first point today, is that God's bread is given to the hungry. God's bread is given to the, to the hungry. Notice that the question in verse 25 is, when did you get here? Yet he knows their heart. Jesus answers them, not addressing the question that they asked, but addressing the sin in their hearts. And he says, Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me. Not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. They were looking for Jesus, not because of who he is, but because of what he did for them. Jesus knew what they wanted. I mean, this Jesus guy, he was feeding them. He was giving them food. They wanted more of this earthly, physical food. And the sin in the Jews' hearts is the same sin struggle that many of us deal today. Our following of Jesus is conditional. Our following of Jesus is based upon the gifts that he's given us. Maybe you follow Jesus because of the friends that it provides. Maybe you follow Jesus because you believe that he will give you happiness Maybe you follow Jesus because if you're faithful or obedient enough, he'll give me everything that I ask. But he is saying, he is saying here that we, he's basically talking about how we equate obedience to blessing, but only on our terms. Sometimes we don't worship God, but rather we worship his gifts. He gives them another suggestion. He says in verse 27, do not work for food that spoils but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed a seal of approval. So Jesus introduces the big metaphor of this section, which is bread. So when we think of bread, I want you guys to think, what does bread metaphorically represent? It represents satisfaction, right? It represents sustenance. It represents getting your fill. And that's really what he's talking about here is a picture of satisfaction. See, it's common for Jesus when he's talking or teaching to use something earthly or carnal to make a heavenly analogy, okay? And when he's talking about the kingdom of God, he'll often use parables and say, this is what the kingdom of God is like. Here, he's helping us understand what Jesus himself is like. And he uses this metaphor of a bread, okay? A.T. Robertson, he says that they were more concerned with hungry stomachs rather than hungry souls. How many times have we seen people more interested in Jesus, not because of who he is, but what they might get out of it? See, the food that spoils that he's talking about here are physical things, but believing in Jesus is the food that endures for, for eternal life. Verse 28, so they respond. They asked him, what must we do what must we do the work God's, I totally messed that up. What must we do to do the works God requires? So essentially they're asking here, what they're asking here, they didn't get it. 
You know, they didn't understand that the bread that the Son of God is providing was not a physical bread. But they want this everlasting bread, this bread that would not spoil, right? They are wanting this bread that they think would last forever, this new manna. They didn't understand. But more so, I think the more key part of this passage is they wanted to earn it. They wanted to earn this bread that didn't spoil, right? They said, what, was, what must we do to do the works God requires? Constable, he says, there is nothing, there's something within the fallen nature of human beings that makes working for eternal life more attractive than receiving it as a gift. And that thing is pride. Verse 29 shows us there's nothing we can do to earn this bread that never, never spoils. Connecting back to verse 27, which he says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And then he explains it in verse 29. Look at this. Jesus answered, the work of God. Notice that. Notice that, right? Do not work for food, but work for food that endures to eternal life. And here he says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. To believe in the one he has sent. We can't earn this heavenly bread. We can't earn this true bread. We must receive it by faith. So trying to understand how they earn it, Jesus makes it clear. What does he say? He says, the work of God is this. It is clear that it is a work of God, not a work of man. Do you see? This work of God enables belief. We see this idea of faith alone equals salvation all throughout scripture. And a few times it's said like this. Help you give some, some more context. It said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them, John 3.36. Or in Romans 3.28, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, Romans 3.28. See, this section of Scripture is clear that to receive the bread that satisfies, it must be received by faith. It is not something that is earned. This bread is given to the hungry. Do you see? This bread is given to the hungry, not for the person that works for the bread, but to the person who is hungry, the one who realizes their need for a savior and puts their faith on him. But of course, the Jews were still unsure. They were skeptical. Even after he miraculously just fed the 5,000, it wasn't enough, right? Hardened hearts, people who are hardened towards God, no matter what proof is presented to them, it's not enough. It is not enough. And the proof here was not enough for them. So they demanded a sign. Paul notes in 1 Corinthians that Jews demand signs. That is something that they do to, to, to basically confirm what you're saying. So they wanted a sign, and this is what it says. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they thought the manna came from Moses, that Moses was the one who gave them manna. When the Jews were in the wilderness, every day God blessed them by giving them this miraculous bread from heaven. And that was how he uh, satisfied their hunger every single day. He gave them this bread. But Jesus wanted them to look to God, not a human mediator of God's blessing. They didn't want them to give credit to Moses because it was a work of God that the manna came from heaven. 
But now God is giving a different kind of bread. This true bread is from heaven also, but this bread is special and that gives life to the world, not just Israel, life to the world. God's bread is available to all who are hungry. The phrase true bread is used here, and the word true in the original language essentially communicates this idea of genuine or original. And so what we see here is, in a sense, Jesus is saying that this true bread is the bread that genuinely satisfies. If bread is intended to satisfy, then Jesus, as the true bread, is the only one who completely and permanently satisfies. That's what he's getting out here. Now, I used to be a college student. I know it's surprising. I look old. But one of the most common phrases I got was, what's next for you? You know, as I got close to graduation, maybe some of you guys are incoming seniors or juniors. You're getting this, right? So what's your five-year plan? What are your goals? You get, you get these questions all the time. And really what they're asking is like, okay, what are your goals and how do you plan to achieve them? That's what they really want to know. And oftentimes, our answers to these questions reveal what bread we are actually chasing, right? What bread we are actually seeking. What are we devoting our lives to in hopes that it satisfies? Is it a job? Is it the hope of marrying the one? Is it the right kind of paycheck? Is it, you know, getting accepted into that program or that school? Is it moving to the city that you really want to move to? Are those the things that you're basically shaping your life around? The point is that we often base our life around decisions that seek earthly and temporary things. We forget the purpose of our life. Our life is not meaningless, and our life does not exist merely for our joy and happiness. Our life is not intended to be sought only after the things that make us happy. Because earthly and temporary things, Jesus makes clear here, cannot satisfy your soul. They will leave you dry. They will leave you hungry. The point of our life is to glorify him in everything that we do. In everything that we do, pointing to him and ultimately finding our joy, our true joy and our true satisfaction in him. So I want, I want to, to challenge you guys. See, this might sound good, at, good and well, what I'm talking about here, but what does it look like in practice? Well, I think what happens when you truly soak in the idea and really think about the glory and majesty of Jesus and what he has done for you, your brain starts to think a little differently when you start to really consider the price that was paid on the cross for your salvation, that, that this good news, that he has made a way of salvation for rebellious sinners, when you start to soak and marinate in this idea, then something happens. God starts to take a little bit more real estate in your brain. God starts to take a little bit more real estate in your heart. And in that, your life choices start to change as well. So this is my challenge to you guys. I wanna challenge each, each person in this room to write out their five-year plan. But I don't want you to write it from a secular perspective. But I want you to write out specifically, just make a list of all the ways that you think God could use you over the next five years. How could you impact the kingdom of God over the next five years. 
When we think about I want, wanting our lives to be meaningful or full of purpose, that doesn't come from merely getting the job or merely finding the spouse or merely moving to the city. But instead, it is living every single day to the glory of God, that the things that matter to him matter to you. And so this might look like pausing your life, aka your career, to do mission work somewhere. It might look like pausing your life, aka searching for the one by moving to a city that you know no one in for the sake of reaching that city. Maybe it looks like giving up a secular job to pursue a ministry job. Are your school obligations or your career aspirations in the way of you following Jesus? Are they in the way? Listen, if your priority for school or your priority for your career ever gets in the way of you doing what God has asked you to do, that is not God's will for your life. That is not God's will for your life. Following Jesus should always be our number one priority. So think critically about what you are prioritizing in your life. How could you reprioritize the things that Jesus desires for us to do over the things that the world desires us to do? So that's my challenge for you guys. All right. After identifying that God's bread is given to the hungry, Jesus is going to respond to them and explain that, explain things even more clearly. And that is number two, that God's bread always satisfies. So God's bread is given to the hungry and God's bread always satisfies. So verse 34, it shows us that the Jews still think that Jesus is talking about physical bread. They still think he's talking about physical bread. They still didn't understand what Jesus was talking about here. So he finally just makes it clear, okay? So verse 34, sir, they said, always give us this bread. Talking about this physical bread, always give us this bread. But verse 35, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes, of me, believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus reveals what the bread actually is by stating clearly, I am. So Jesus accomplishes a couple things in this, in this statement that I am the bread of life. The first is what we talked about at the beginning, I am. By saying ego I me, he's essentially claiming his divinity. He is drawing that connection. But he is also, as the bread of life, talking about this idea, this idea of being the one who permanently and completely satisfies. So what we'll see this summer whenever we go through all of the seven I am statements of John is basically we are going to be understanding what God is like through Jesus. Jesus is the perfect revelation of God and he will use these statements to basically communicate to people this is what God is like. So what is he saying here by saying I am the bread of life? Well he's saying God is the only one through me the only one who completely and permanently satisfies. Every time, every I am statement that Jesus makes, he is making a metaphor to humankind's basic needs. Basic needs, whether it's security or whether it's guidance or whether it's sustenance, Jesus is the one who satisfies. And so that's what he's essentially getting at here, that he is the one who perfectly and completely satisfies on a spiritual level. Leon Morris, in his book, The Lord of Heaven, he says, to Jewish ears, 
this I am aroused associations of the divine. From the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the expression is frequently used by God himself. That's what we learned last week. There's little doubt that John's repeated use of this expression is meant to awaken these divine associations. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. So over the summer, we're going to discuss every I am statement and see not only that Jesus is God, but how or what God is like. He also says they will never go thirsty or hungry, doesn't he? The Greek here for never, I love this, is emphatic. It is emphatic. They will never go hungry. They will never go thirsty. Jesus is the only one we need to satisfy our spiritual needs. It's not Jesus plus performance. It's not Jesus plus this accomplishment. It is not Jesus plus, but Jesus alone. He is the one who completely and perfectly satisfies. That's what he's trying to get across. They will never go hungry. They will never go thirsty. But verse 36 shows us that these Jews are still spiritually blind. They had seen Jesus, but they had yet to still they had still yet to believe. In verse 37 through 40, it will explain why they are still spiritually blind. Verse 37 says, all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. So verse 37 is key. It is key to understanding how God's bread always satisfies. See, in these verses, we see Jesus essentially explain personal salvation, verses 37 through 40. And some of you in this room may have heard of election. Some of you may have wondered about the correlation between God's will and human responsibility, a debate as old as time. And if you, like me, have wrestled with those ideas, Jesus here specifically addresses them. He specifically has something to say to you. What he says here is that essentially belief requires divine enablement. That's what Tom Constable says. See, Jesus first, he talks about this first phrase, okay? So in this first phrase, he talks about the group. And in the second phrase, he'll talk about the individual. So the elect are all those the Father gives me will come to me. So it's essentially those who God has chosen before the beginning of time will turn to Jesus. They will turn to Jesus. Those who the Father calls will respond in faith by believing or coming or looking upon, all phrases used in this passage, upon Jesus for their salvation. But he also talks about the individuals of that group, right? What does he say? And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. So some of you may have asked the question, how do I know if I'm even a part of God's elect? How do I know if this other person is elect? Are they just, you know, out of luck? Well, we have no idea who is a part of the elect. We have no idea who God has chosen before time, but we do know that those whom the Father gives to Jesus will come to him, and those who come to Jesus, he will never drive away. So if someone comes to Jesus, they are a part of that group. It is not this, this idea that, oh, in my sin I came to Jesus, but it wasn't really real or authentic. He's saying that all who come to me, I will never drive away. So the bread of life, Jesus makes two claims about personal salvations here. He is making two claims about individuals who believe. Jesus makes a claim about himself and he makes a claim about believers, doesn't he? Believers are secure in Christ 
and Christ secures the believer. Believers are secure in Christ and Christ secures the believer. And I love this verse because it connects the nature of the group with the nature of the individual, right? This verse is instrumental in helping us understand. Whoever comes to Jesus, he will never drive away or cast out. If you come to Jesus, what does that mean? It means that you can be confident in your salvation. You can be confident in your eternal security. You do not have to doubt it because God's bread always satisfies. It always satisfies because it is not your effort. It is not how strong your faith is, but it is your response to a conversation that God has already started. It is a work that is only accomplished by God and through Christ. So verse 38, it continues. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I'll raise them up at the last day. So here, Jesus basically explains the purpose of the incarnation. What is the purpose of Jesus coming to this earth? Well, it is the very fact that the Son came to this earth to fulfill the Father's will. Salvation, you may never have heard this, but it is a Trinitarian act. We believe that God is one in essence, but three in persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Salvation is a Trinitarian act. It is from the Father, accomplished through the Son, and affected by the Holy Spirit. I'll say that again. Salvation is from the Father, accomplished through the Son, and is affected by the Holy Spirit. And guys, if our salvation is a work of God, if our salvation is based on God's work, then there is nothing we can do to lose it because it is something we have not earned. Do you see that? That is because God's bread always satisfies and in verse 39, it continues with this idea of spiritual security, right? Eternal security. Nothing can stop God's will. And God's will is that I, or Jesus, shall lose none of all those he has given me. Jesus has a hold on believers. We are his. And not only that, but he promises in verse 39, the eternal nature of this salvation. It is not just a temporary salvation. It is an eternal one. One that where we, one day we will have physically resurrected bodies on the last day. And he ends in verse 40, explaining the part of salvation that is the responsibility of each person. He is balancing God's will and human responsibility here, this tension that exists. He's explaining it so beautifully. See, looking to the Son, or this idea of spiritually seeing, actually understanding who Jesus is and what he has done is key. There is an active part in our salvation that is believing. Though this faith is caused by God, there is still personal responsibility to believe. And this is a perfect example of, of, of existing between these two truths. It's like this. I remember when I first bought my car. Has anyone ever like gone through the car buying experience? I love how complicated they make it. It's really great. But I remember the first time I was buying my first car and I had my dad with me. And whenever they would ask a question that I had no idea what the answer to it was, or I didn't know how to respond, I would just look to my dad. 
I would just look to my dad and he would answer it for me or he would help me out in the situation. And one day, everyone in this room, we will all be judged for our life. And they'll ask us, so what, do you des- what did you do to deserve getting into heaven? What did you do to deserve getting into heaven? It really does not matter what your answer is in that moment. You could say the most eloquent response. You can point to all the things that you did in your past life. You can do, say, look at this, look at that, look at this. I did all these things. But what matters is that we look to Jesus in that moment because he answers the question that we could not. It is the person and work of God that accomplishes our salvation. It is Jesus who has saved us. It is not us, some 1% saving ourselves, but it is totally and completely based on the work of God. So whenever we are unable to answer that question, that's what it means by looking to Jesus. We are looking to him. Friends, this is how, it, how I think it could be described. This is how Jesus looks at us. The only person in the universe, let's put that quote back up. The only person in the universe whose opinion counts looks at me and he finds me more valuable than all the jewels in creation. This is our identity in Christ. Valuable. More valuable than all the jewels in creation. And it is his opinion that counts. It is his opinion that counts. So what do we do with all this? Well, I think it's a natural response whenever we sin to feel guilty, right? When we sin, we, f- we have a conscience that basically says, hey, you just sinned. And guilt of sin, I think, is appropriate, but shame of sin is inappropriate. Guilt is feeling bad about an action, but shame is identifying that action with who you are, with yourself. You are identifying and letting it become who you are. If God has rescued you of no work of your own, then you cannot do anything and nothing can, you can do can be done to separate you from that salvation. Nothing you can do can change the identity that has been changed by Christ. This means repent from your shame. If you're feeling shame over a sin that you've done or if you were saying, this is who I am, just, just a, a sinner, if you've trusted in Christ, look to the cross Be reminded that Jesus Christ died for those sins too. And he has said that you are forgiven in him. The God of your salvation. Remember the God of your salvation that he bled and died for that sin too. So if you're feeling guilt or you're feeling shame, remember that you are secure in Christ. That God's bread always satisfies. There's nothing you can do and nothing that can be done to you that can separate you from God's love. We've seen today that Jesus is the bread of life and that he satisfies by seeing that one, God's bread is given to the hungry and two, that God's bread always satisfies. And finally, we'll see that God's bread lasts forever. So after Jesus responds that he is the bread of life, the Jews are doubtful, right? They know he is Mary and Joseph's son. How could he come down from heaven if he's Mary and Joseph's son? Well, he rebukes them and commands them like the Israelites who received manna in the wilderness to what? Stop grumbling. Stop grumbling. And he reiterates what was said in verse 37, verse 44. 
no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. And continues, it is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. So taking a moment to talk about sight, Jesus is making a claim about their spiritual blindness. Those who will be taught by God or those who the Father draws, as it says in verse 44, are those who come to Jesus. We know who the Father draws by if they come to Jesus. And when they come to Jesus, he explains to them that it is God that illuminates their mind. Those who are, quote, taught by God are irresistibly compelled by Christ, by the Spirit to come to Christ. It would be like if you were colorblind, okay? So if someone were telling you, hey, look at this amazing, beautiful rainbow. Isn't it just so gorgeous? Look at this beautiful rainbow. And you're colorblind. And you're like, um, it's okay. It's cool. It's all right. And if they hand you a pair of those colorblind sunglasses, you know, the ones that let colorblind people see color, they would finally understand what this person was talking about. They would see, oh my gosh, you are absolutely right. It is so beautiful. It is so magnificent. It is so glorious. And this is what it looks like when we come to faith in Christ, when God finally shows us what he is like in the person of Christ, when we finally reveal that we are a sinner in need of a savior, it is like we have received new eyes and we can see the beauty finally. We can see the glory finally. And there's nothing we can do but respond in faith saying, Jesus, I need you. I need you to save me. When God finally shows us what our need is and what, how our need has been completely satisfied in Christ, we can't help but be comp compelled to follow Jesus. That's what he's getting at here. So what is Jesus getting at? What is he getting at? All this discourse about bread, what is he getting at? Verse 47, very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. Again, I am the bread of life. The one who believes has eternal life. You might have noticed him saying very truly a few times throughout this. Well, essentially that's in this day, that would essentially saying not just, hey, believe me, I, I, I know this, but it's believe me, I have authority on this. I have firsthand knowledge of this. So when he says very truly, he is saying so as the divine son of God the one who understands this spiritual reality. The only one that could understand this would be God, right? He's not just saying, believe me, this is true. He's saying, believe me, I know this is true firsthand. He's helping them see that God's bread lasts forever. How could he know firsthand? This is another claim to his divinity. And once again, there is this active part upon the person receiving the grace, believing, right? But the question is, how can they believe, though? They must have a new heart. Sometimes we call this a regenerated heart. This new heart is the cause that leads someone to believe. Believing doesn't lead to a new heart. A new heart allows someone to believe. That's how it's, that's how it's written here. The original translation says, the way the language says, is it basically says, the one who believes has, or already has, hath, already has eternal life. It is not the belief that leads to grace. It is the grace that leads to belief. 
Verse 48, continuing. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here's the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Jesus wants to make sure they hear it. He is the bread of life. God's bread lasts forever. And he compares once again to the manna in the wilderness. He wants them to know that that manna was temporary. Daily, it satisfied them, but they needed to eat it every single day. But what Jesus is offering is eternal, permanent, complete satisfaction. Today, we've seen clearly that as the bread of life, Jesus satisfied. We've seen this by looking that God's bread, which as we've seen is Jesus, is given to the hungry. It always satisfies and it lasts forever. So I want to encourage every one of you, do not fall into the lie that this world is selling, that it's meaningless, that nothing can satisfy. There is the bread of life waiting for you to take. It is a free gift. It is not some blue ribbon for you to earn. It is a loaf of bread given to the hungry. Look to him, not the world, to satisfy your soul. It is possible that some of you in this room have tried this religion thing. It's possible, but I want to ask, have you tried Jesus? Jesus doesn't just want cold, mindless religion. He wants all of you. He has already demonstrated his love for you by dying on the cross could he be calling to you today to trust in him for the forgiveness of your sin? Maybe you've been walking in a path that is all about looking like a Christian. Could it be time for you to finally say, I'm a sinner in need of grace and I wanna put my faith in you, Jesus? See, Jesus lived a perfect life. He lived the life that we couldn't live by dying on the cross in our place our wage for our sin was death. But Jesus died in our place that anyone who would believe in him and put their, trace in, their faith in him would be like Jesus in the sense that he rose again. He conquered death and the power of sin. By trusting in Christ, you can also conquer sin and death. So, are you guys ready to follow Jesus? Maybe you haven't for a while. You can start today. That's the beauty of this. You can start any day. Let me end with a hymn to remember where our satisfaction comes, up, comes from. This is from In Christ Alone. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man, can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ I'll stand let me pray for us dear Holy Father thank you so much for giving us the bread of life Jesus Christ Lord thank you for showing us what you're like thank you for helping us see that you are the only one who truly satisfies I pray that our life would be fully and devoted to you give us this bread in Jesus name I pray amen